there, theater lovers. It's me, Bryn. Today, I'm excited to talk to you about a more classic and well-known play called Top Girls by Carol Churchill. Our guest is my good friend, Joanna Eisenberg, and I think you'll really enjoy her insights into this work. But first, announcements. My good friend, playwright Lily Welsh, has a show opening tonight through Sarah Lawrence College's theater department. It is called Cope in Wonder, and it is inspired by the ballet Coppelia. It is directed by Kyrie Ellison, our guest from episode three. You can see the show tonight at 8 p.m. EST, or tomorrow at 11 a.m. EST. You can reserve your free tickets through the link in Sarah Lawrence College Theater Department's Instagram bio. Their handle is at SLC Theater Department, Theater RE. Or go to eventbrite.com and search for Cope in Wonder. The Tank NYC has a few online events this upcoming week. First up, on Monday, there is a live improv show on Zoom at 7 p.m. EST. On Wednesday the 11th, there is an online performance of the play Wash Your Bowl by Dylan James Amick at 7 p.m. EST. And finally, on Thursday the 12th at 7 p.m. EST, there will be a world premiere performance of Lost in the Sea, author not stated. You can get tickets as well as more information on the Tanks website under their online calendar. The Barrow Group is having their Youth Inc. reading series tonight at 7 p.m. EST. Free tickets can be obtained on their website under their calendar. If you would like to participate in the readings, you can arrive at the call an hour early in order to be cast. All the scripts are written by kids between the ages of 6 and 18, so go support young theater makers. The Atlantic is having another reunion reading. This time, it's of Guards at the Taj by Rajiv Joseph. You can watch tonight or tomorrow for free, though there is a suggested donation of $25. Tickets can be obtained through the Atlantic Theater's website under their calendar. New York Theater Workshop has some fun online events going on this month. Currently, they are presenting Pinching Pennies with Penny Marshall, Death Rituals for Penny Marshall by Victor I. Cazares through November 14th. There is also a presentation of What the Hell is a Republic Anyway, written and performed by Dennis O'Hare and Lisa Peterson through this Sunday. You can get your tickets for either or both, which I believe are free, through New York Theater Workshop's calendar on their website. The Manhattan Theater Club is presenting the Ted Snowden Reading Series, starting November 10th. There are five new works that will be presented. The first reading is of Long by Charlie O, and it will be available to watch for free on the Manhattan Theater Club YouTube channel for four days starting on the 10th. That's all the announcements for this week. So now, I think it's time to dive into the world of Top Girls by Carol Churchill. Carol Churchill is a British playwright born in London in 1938. After the Second World War, her family immigrated to Montreal, Quebec, Canada. She went back to England for university, where she attended Lady Margaret Hall, a college at Oxford University. Her degree was in English literature. While at school, she received the Richard Hillary Memorial Prize 
and her first four plays were performed by student ensembles. One of these plays, called Downstairs, was performed at the National Student Drama Festival of 1958 and won first prize. Churchill's early career started with BBC Radio as a short radio drama writer. By 1972, she had her first professional production of one of her plays, entitled Owners. It was then that her professional career as a playwright began to really take off. By the time she wrote Top Girls, she had abandoned realism and focused in on her feminist themes. Speaking of Top Girls, it was the winner of an Obie Award in 1983. It was first performed in London at the Royal Court Theatre in August of 1982. Since then, it has been revived multiple times, both in London and New York, and in 2014, the Daily Telegraph listed Top Girls as one of the top 15 best plays of all time. A short summary of Top Girls. Marlene is a successful businesswoman who has recently been promoted at her company, Top Girls Employment Agency. She gathers women from history at a hip London restaurant to celebrate. The following two acts reveal the harmful aspects of Marlene's views on feminism, varying from looking down upon a woman for wanting to get married and have children, to the frankly infuriating belief that class does not exist. Top Girls critiques Thatcherite feminism while examining the roles that were available to women in the Western world during the 80s, as well as what it means or takes for a woman to succeed. I think one of the biggest things to understand in order to get into the nitty gritty of this play is Thatcherite feminism. As feminists in 2020, we may be a little appalled at what was considered feminist in 1980s England, but it's important not only to understand what Churchill is critiquing, but also to understand how far feminist ideology has come. For one, Thatcher may have been the first and so far only female prime minister England has ever had, but she didn't do much to promote other women in their political careers. In fact, according to The Guardian, in Thatcher's 11-year stint as prime minister, she only promoted one woman to her cabinet. Thatcher was a conservative, and The Independent is quoted as saying Thatcher always endorsed patriarchal ways of running the state. Basically, just because a political leader is a woman doesn't mean she supports women or policies that benefit women and women's rights. I think at least here in America, we're all painfully aware of that right now. Anyways, Thatcherite feminism is distinctly patriarchal. Thatcher herself did not promote policies that enforced equal rights. While she was a woman, she was also a white and middle-aged woman of privilege who didn't attempt to understand women that were not like her. To my understanding, this is the type of feminism that today we would probably group with the type of feminists whose feminism and activism does not include women of color, queer women, disabled women, or trans women. However, we cannot ignore the good that having a woman as a national political leader did. It showed women and young girls that they could be powerful and that they could do jobs that had been societally defined as men's jobs. But some people can take things like this too far. I'm fond of saying that extremism in any way is harmful. Marlene is an example of this. She takes it from 
women could do whatever they want, good, to women should only want to do these specific things, which is just patriarchy in a different form. Now, on to the second most important dramaturgical point. The women in Act One that Marlene has dinner with, they're all historical figures of some sort, some real and some not. The women we see are as follows. Isabella Bird, Lady Nijo, Dulgret, Patient Griselda, and Pope Joan. I'll give a short description of each woman. First, Isabella Bird. She was a world traveler and author who lived from 1831 to 1904. She was always a sickly child and doctors recommended an open air life. This meant that she learned a lot about sports and nature as a child, and this inspired her to eventually travel. She was also an avid reader and published her first pamphlet at age 16. She went to various places such as Australia, America, Hawaii, India, Tibet, and more. Bird married late in life to a doctor who died shortly before their fifth anniversary. Jim Nugent, a sort of lover character whom she mentions in the play, was indeed a real person whom Isabella told her sister, Henny, was a man any woman might love, but no sane woman would marry, which is something she actually says in the play as well. Now, Lady Nijo. She lived in Japan from 1258 to 1307, approximately. Lady Nijo was a poet, noblewoman, and concubine to Emperor Go Fukakusa. When she was expelled from court in 1283, she became a Buddhist nun. At the end of her life, she wrote a memoir whose title in English is An Unasked For Tale, or The Confessions of Lady Nijo. That is the work she is most known for today, and how we know so much about her and her life. Because of this, the details of her life as described in the play are fairly accurate. Dulgret is a figure in Flemish folklore who was immortalized in a painting in 1563 by artist Pieter Brugel the Elder. The painting depicts Dulgret leading an army of women to pillage hell. She wears male armor and carries a sword. Gret was a disparaging name given to bad-tempered and shrewish women in medieval Flemish society. The painting is actually disparaging as well, portraying the women as greedy and aggressive. Top Girls turns this on its head. Patient Griselda is a figure in European folklore. Top Girls tells the most famous version of the Griselda story, where she is married to a Marquess who tests her by supposedly killing her children and then renouncing her or essentially divorcing her. Eventually, the Marquess calls for Griselda to come back and reveals that her children are actually alive and accepts her back as his wife. Yeah, it's a big old yikes. Griselda as a character appears in some other stories and elements of this particular story are referenced in other tales, such as Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. Finally, Pope Joan. According to legend, she was a female pope who reigned for a few years in the Middle Ages. She was supposedly a very smart and well-educated woman who disguised herself as a man in order to have more access to education or to follow a lover, it's not very clear. 
Eventually, this led her to the church, where she rose through the ranks and was eventually elected pope. She was only revealed to be a woman when she gave birth in the street during a procession. This story spread widely in the 13th century and was heavily debated in the 16th, but most modern scholars believe it is fictional. All right. I think now that we are aware of Thatcherite feminism and are minor experts in both historical and folkloric women, we can get into our reading. This week, we have Edie Pierce back again to read a monologue from Act 2, Scene 1 of Top Girls as the character Louise. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now... The reading of a monologue from Act Two of Top Girls by Edie Pierce as Louise. There you are. I've lived for that company. I've given my life, really, you could say, because I haven't had a great deal of social life. I've worked in the evenings. I haven't had any office entanglements for the very reason you just mentioned, and if you are committed to your work, you don't move in many other circles. I had management status from the age of 27, and you'll appreciate what that means. I've built up a department, and there it is. It works extremely well, and I feel I'm stuck there. I've spent 20 years in middle management. I've seen young men who I trained go on in my own company or elsewhere to hire things. Nobody notices me. I, I, I don't expect it. I don't attract attention by making mistakes. Everybody takes it for granted that my work is perfect. They will notice me when I go. They will be sorry, I think, to lose me. They will offer me more money, of course. I will refuse. They will see when I've gone what I was doing for them. Thank you once again for lending your talents to the podcast, Edie. Edie's professional details are listed in the show notes of this episode. This week, we have theater artist, dramaturg, stage manager, producer, and playwright Joanna Eisenberg as our guest. She served as a dramaturg and costume designer for Sarah Lawrence College's performance of Top Girls in 2019. Hi, Joanna. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast this week. Hi, Bryn. It's so nice to hear your voice. Oh, I miss people and things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that has been a common uh, comment in my past interviews of people being saying, oh, I, I miss being in person. And well, I hope that this podcast can serve as a good uh, substitute while we wait for such things. <laughs> I think I so far it's putting me in just a tremendously better mood than I've been in for a very long time so <laughs> that's good to hear and I hope that uh I hope that listening to this podcast does that for other people as well uh because we want to talk about theater and we want to have fun and think about pleasant things for a little while <laughs> right yeah I'm not sure if we'd call this play pleasant but yeah, but yeah <laughs> <laughs> something else that isn't uh the trash fire that is 2020 uh yes. yes bring us back to the small fire of 1981 <laughs> yes it's much smaller comparison fire of 1981 yeah <laughs> oh god speaking of 1981 like this play is pretty it's one of the older plays i've covered on this podcast and it's 
really well regarded and it's been performed a lot in London and New York and in colleges like Sarah Lawrence for years. Um, yeah. and I was wondering, um, did that affect how you did dramaturgical research? Well, so working as a dramaturg on this project, I think probably was different than the way most people work uh, on dramaturgical work. Mm-hmm. Um, for starters, uh, we did it in a class. Um, so part of this process was um, being in a dramaturgy class where originally uh, Stuart Spencer, who's the teacher, was going to do just a totally random play that he really loved, that he knew we could dive deep into. Um, and then when this play had been approved for the fall season, um, he decided that no, this is this is the play we're going to do. This is this is a great example. We can actually work in a real life setting where we can have the director come in and say what they need, and and actually have somebody that we are responsible to outside of just doing a class credit. Oh yeah, that's great. Which I myself have a lot of trouble, I guess, with being. Resp- with work and who I'm responsible for getting that work done. Yeah. So having having a real life person in there, even though it's a student, um, but having having that director in there as opposed to just having the teacher, where you know I can say, "But Spence, I don't know what I'm doing." You know, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> um, so that was one aspect of of how the work for this was different. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect of it is that it wasn't just me. It was a group of six people in this class. Um, and so we all worked on it together. Um, we all did our own research and we would do, but then we'd come back to class and we'd argue and we'd debate. And one of the things I talked about in my portfolio for my thesis was that to me, theater very much is a collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a camel. It's a horse built by committee, right? And say what you want about a say what you want it about a camel, but I love camels. I think they're fantastic, <laughs> um, and they're weird, and they seem pointless. And to me, that kind of is what theater is. is there's a point, but you don't really know. But you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's weird. Yeah. Um, and having five other people plus Spence to argue these things with really allowed us and especially me because I work much better bouncing off of other people um, to really dive deeper into this thing. Now, the way that I think um, personally also um, I had never done any dramaturgical work before um, prior to Getting into grad school, I did not know what dramaturgy was. Um, I don't think I, you're alone in that. <laughs> I, I did get into a dramaturgy program that I chose not to go to. <laughs> um, only in part because I had no idea what it was. Um, <laughs> I just knew, like, I was like, it's in theater and it's near me. And, and but I wanted to, yeah, I wanted yeah. to go there. So, um, so that's how all of this, re- the dramaturgical work for this was definitely different um, than typical dramaturgical work would have been. 
the way it was the same, I think, is in the way we started our research. Mm -hmm. Um, And the easiest way to start your research is to start with basic facts, figures, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So going back and saying, okay, who wrote the play? Carol Churchill. You know, when was the play first produced? Where was it first produced? How many times has it been produced, um, you know, in the West End, on Broadway, off-Broadway, in small theaters? Has there been a touring company? Doing all just basic fact where you can literally write it down, you know, where you just have your facts and figures. And that does give you a good idea as to how well-known the play is. Mm-hmm. Um by most people. I'm not most people. I had never heard of it before. Um, As it turns out, the director had also (laughs) never heard of it before. Um, Yeah, she, um, uh, the the director, uh, Claire Marib, had -hmm. been studying in London um, or in England when they Mm -hmm. proposed to be a director and they'd picked a, a different show Uh, um and 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 the department was like well how about this one they're like okay fine (laughs) i want to direct um so it was an entry it was an interesting experience for everyone on that respect um but i think the interesting part about it is when you look at how many times it's been performed it's been performed quite a bit, but not at the level that you would think something that is this dense. And I don't mean dense in a, in a bad way, but I mean deep, deep, I guess, or at this level, once, once you've read it a few times, once you've seen the level that it is at, you would wonder why this isn't, you know, why this isn't produced everywhere um, (laughs) all the time, you know, and it's something that on one level can be easily done in any community theater. And and part of the issue with community theater is money and and obviously, so that's why, but um, it's also something that it just, seems more accessible on one surface that you would think it would be performed more um and then i i don't know how to explain (laughs) what i'm thinking (laughs) this play um i mentioned in the uh the short dramaturgical section uh earlier in this episode that this play was on a uh list of like the top 15 best plays of all time and yet there are theater students that don't hear about this work until they're in college or grad school. I know I had only vaguely heard of it until Sarah Lawrence College decided to put it up. Yeah. Which I find strange. I had never heard of it. Um, And (laughs) uh, I think by, by, about a year ago about about where we are right now so about mid-october i think i think it went up at the end of october mm-hmm. um yeah we were done hearing about it yeah. <laughs> there is a good portion there that 
none of us, none of us wanted to hear about it ever, ever, ever again. <laughs> yeah, I assume that uh, can happen a lot when you're diving so deep into a play all the time <laughs> that you kind of get sick of it. Yeah, it's very consuming. Um especially in a, in the con- confines of grad school where everything is so consuming and you're yeah. doing so much. But then um, for me, in addition to having this class assignment where the entire class is shaped around this play um, and we're using it as a real life example where we are now interacting with the director. And so we have someone mm-hmm. that we are accountable to. So you know, even if you were to approach classes as, oh, it only matters once we're there. Um, now you have something where it's like, oh, no, it, it does matter when we're not there because other people are counting on us. Yeah. Um, I was also working as the costume designer. Mm-hmm. So all of the research I did, I also did with a, an eye on design um, and thinking about how this plays into what the clothes are going to look like um, <laughs> and going to production meetings and rehearsals. And especially with how the rest of my work um, during that time period was structured and things that happened during that time, um, that last week, two weeks um, of the show, it was very, um, I was probably not a pleasant person to be around at that time. <laughs> I know I was not a pleasant person to be around. Um, And I was finding nobody to be a pleasant person to be around. Uh, And I mean, the second, you know, it opened, uh, I was actually working uh, that night. I was the grad on duty. Uh, And so we opened and, um, or no, I wasn't. I was the the next night I was the grad on duty. That's right. Um, Because I got everybody, you know, upstairs and in in their places and I left. (laughs) I left my assistant costume designers. They knew what to do. I was like, I am done (laughs) going home. I am sleeping. So, I mean, literally, like, I I could hear them doing the house speech as I walked out of the building to go home. See ya, suckers. (laughs) Like, I was like, okay, I am officially 100% done. Well, I'm... I'm glad that uh, we have a year break then so that uh, <laughs> we can talk more uh, um, frankly and openly and unbiasedly about about the play. Yes, yes. Oh, gosh. Um, I guess back to the play. Um, I was curious. I know as I was reading this, I was thinking about uh, how what I was reading was actually kind of different from how I had heard the play discussed because a lot of people really only told me about what happens in act one with all of the uh, historical and folkloric women uh, at the restaurant and all that stuff. So I thought the whole play was that. And then as I read the script for the first time last year, I was like, Oh my God, there's this whole other section of the play that people don't seem to be talking about. So I was wondering was there something about the play that surprised you when you first read it? So I, each read is different, as you know. So the first read, the first read for me of anything written in England 
is the overcoming of the Britishisms. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I myself am a dense person, so it takes me a while to to get through the you know individual obvious things that most people can just figure out in their heads. I have it takes me a while. Um, so that was number one. Mm-hmm. Number two was the structure of the play. Um, because we have it in our head, and this is something that in our discussions in our class, um, which is another great reason why I think everything in theater, I think there are very few people who can do things, um, by themselves without having any input. And even those people have input, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Um, but we had a lot of discussions about the structure of the play because it is not structured in the traditional um, Aristotelian or even you know um, you know Joseph Campbell whatever whatever your traditional structure of a play is it is not structured in that way at all when you read it the first time it almost seems as if there is no structure that there are two acts that are disjointed, that have one common character mm-hmm. um, that makes no sense as to why these go together, that leaves you after that first act, the first read through of the first act is very what is going on and then you get to the second act and you're like well that seemed boring and leaves you with all these questions and it's it makes you realize on you know that I guess this answers my first question that I was having earlier about like why hasn't this been produced more um is because it is hard to pull that off to to make these two things fit and to make and to make people understand why with one sitting um yeah and i guess you know if if you're good enough you can, you don't necessarily they don't necessarily leave the theater knowing why but they leave the theater questioning why as opposed mm-hmm. to just writing it off completely and actually you know questioning why is almost better than knowing why the most yeah it just the structure of the play is so bizarre and one of the things that was brought up was that carol churchill had attempted to you know our our classic structure of a play is Mm -hmm. you know your initial you know you're setting up and then your initial incident and your rising tension or your rising conflict till you get to your climax and then your fall and your conclusion right yeah which in this discussion we had uh greatly resembles the male orgasm (laughs) and so the counterclaim to that is this play which the theory is, and we could never, we never really found a definitive answer as to whether this is actually true, um, that, that Carol Churchill had wrote it to mask the, to pattern after the female orgasm. Oh. Which is a very interesting discussion to have. Yeah. Uh, 
in a class of four women and two gay men. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's so interesting. Or in any class, really, I guess. But yeah, yeah, and it's... You know, all of us kind of sat there and thought about for the while, and the, the two men were like, "We have no idea what you're talking about. They have no interest in the subject whatsoever." Um, but you know, we all kind of were like, "Okay, I can see how that maybe," and then that, of course, devolves into like, "Well, but you know, de- longer discussions that fall off of." the topic um but I think more than anything the point of the structure is is to make you question what's actually going on which eventually our discussions did lead to and our theories that we are convinced are true um (laughs) are quite I mean they are not they're not there on the page they aren't um but i'm convinced it is true as to what is actually happening um and i think if you look at the structure of the play and of these different things that that you know that that is what is happening that alone um especially uh comparing the uh, normal uh, quote-unquote traditional structure of a story which i'm sure we all learned in like elementary school language arts class um uh, the male orgasm is interesting because Carol Churchill's plays tend to focus on feminist theory and feminist themes. Uh, and it seems like if that structure does indeed correlate to something so intrinsically cisgender male, it's almost like rejecting the patriarchy completely to create an opposite structure. Yeah. So but then when you combine that with actu- the actual substance of the place, specifically um, with Marlene and, yeah. and these characters that she has surrounded herself in the first act, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, I don't know, spoilers, whatever. The play is 40 <laughs> years old. Uh, <laughs> so if you look at the first act, there's this dinner party in which Marlene, as far as we know, is the only, you know, quote unquote, real character. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's the main character she shows up in act two, whereas none of these other women do. Yeah. And you have these characters that rep- that represent a certain type of womanhood if that makes sense. And it's with the exception of Griselda who comes in as the last person, um, they're all in direct contrast to what the idea of a woman has been historically. Right. Yeah. And, and never mind the fact that probably only one of these women is real. Um, maybe two, maybe two. Um, but but really, definitively, only one of them is real. Um, yes. Um, Lady Nijo might be real. Mm-hmm. The rest are all definitely fictional. Yeah. Um, which was another hot debate as to the authenticity of Pope Joan. 
Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but so you have these characters that, with the exception of um, Griselda, are all very much, you know, a, a head, to, you know, fighting against whatever the idea of womanhood is, right? And it seems like such a powerful message of here are these women that are getting together and they're talking about their lives and they're sharing experiences. And, and this really, again, if you read the play multiple times, you figure it out, but if you're only going to go and see it once, it's very tricky to really show these, these layers. Um, and so it, it takes a lot to do. Um, and I think what we did was, was pretty darn good. Um, um, I think it's a, it's a hard thing to pull off. And I think we did, we did pretty darn good. Um, How did you guys approach that? <laughs> um, well, I think that would be a better question for Claire, who's the director. Uh, gotcha. The, the confines of, of our ability to produce things, um, while in school and out of school, um, definitely affected how things were done. And I think, I think this play requires much, just much more time, um, just for the creative crew, um, you know, and to come in and, and really spend a year working on it before you get anything on its feet. Um, wow. Because there are people who know, I mean, for me, I know there are people who know what they're doing every second that they're doing it. Yeah. Um, I am not one of those people. Neither am I. <laughs> uh, I, there are things that I'm doing that I know I'm doing and I know there is a reason. Yeah. I can't tell you what that reason is. <laughs> I know there is a reason. And so the more prepared I am, the more prepped, the more, I mean, I was, I, you can ask my um, lovely assistant costume designers, um, Allie Thomas and uh, Maggie Campbell. Mm -hmm. uh, I was probably quite insufferable, especially the last week. Cause yeah. I was like detail, 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 detail. And yeah. they could ask me, well, why? And I would be like, uh, that's <laughs> listen because it needs to happen <laughs> and in my head I knew it like I knew that this thing had to look this certain way and and this character should not be wearing earrings and this character's hair should have a flip straight like and I and I knew that that was exactly what it had to be but I I could not tell you um necessarily why you have good intuition <laughs> well and it's been so much time with this play that the information is there it just doesn't I can't quite verbalize it um so that I think is is the hardest part about this play so we have especially when you go back to that first scene yeah. where you have these characters that seemingly are sharing stories are seemingly bonding and and you know girl power and all this all that stuff 
And then you go through the entire play, and again, spoiler alert, the play is 40 years old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you get to that, you, you get throughout the day, and, and you watch this character that is the only character you've known the entire time who you have now kind you know, you kind of figured out that at some point that the first scene was definitely in her head. Mm-hmm. Um, and you watch as your idea of her is kind of destroyed. Um, And generally speaking, if, if you're watching this play, you're, you're definitely a type of person. Um, (laughs) You're probably more of a literal person. You're probably more of a, a person who believes that women should be equal. Um, You're probably more on that spectrum as disposed to somebody who, you know, might think women should stay in the home or something. Um, That's not the case for all plays. I I think that should be, you know, um, but for this specific play, that is the case. Mm -hmm. And you get through this play and then this person that has been built up as the heroine, as the, the, you know, the protagonist, the person you're supposed to be rooting for in the story you the entire second act is just chipping away at that until you finally get to that last scene where almost out of nowhere (laughs) you find out that she loves margaret thatcher um and that she is all for conservative politics and and more than likely stands opposed to everything that the viewer who's watching this you know loves and cherishes and believes in and um and this is the person you've been rooting for um and then you find out that not only uh does she not stand for the same things you thought she stood for but she's also a hypocrite <laughs> i oh, mean hypocrite. and so then the question is like how do you how do you portray this person? And that I know was a, a big issue for the director um, is how do you portray this person that f- almost feels like they ber- betrayed you throughout the play? Um, oh yeah. And how do you make them, how do you, and, and I know it was an issue for the actor who played, um, who played Marlene in our, in our production, Casey Britt. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they had a, 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 a quite a bit of trouble figuring out how to make this character relatable to themselves and how to make this character um, someone that they understood. And it was something that the two of us, once the whole thing was over, we did have a conversation. And I was like, well, this is my theory. And they were yeah. like, oh, my God, I had a similar theory. And that's the only way. And and by the way, anybody that gets to see Casey Britton, anything, I think they are the most tremendous actor. They intimidate me on a <laughs> level <laughs> that probably isn't healthy. And I told them this. Um, but it was, I don't know if you remember, but when we went to interview, and we went and saw, um, they did a production of Big Love. Casey was the star of that. I do remember um, that. And so I remembered them um, from that. And and 
just watching them work is, is insane. Um, just absolutely insane. It's because they're so good. Um, <laughs> it does seem, it is interesting because Casey uh, is non-binary and Marlene is, ends up being this conservative woman. I can't imagine the mother bun must have been difficult for them. Well, we, I know we had one of the things we discussed with some of our theories about how we justify Marlene's actions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, again, they're not on the page. They're just yeah. not. But <laughs> I am right about them. And I, 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 I'm hesitant to say them, but I also really want to share them. So, yeah, if you'd like to feel free, I'd be interested. Okay. <laughs> We're up for speculation here. So hopefully anyone listening to this has already read the play. So I'll put that <laughs> out there. Again, spoiler alert, it's 40 years old. Yes. <laughs> um, which, you know, who, I had never read the play until a year ago, so who am I? Yeah, um, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> so the first act of the play is Marlene talking with all these women who are in her head. And the second act is almost chronological, almost, Mm -hmm. of a day in the life of Marlene, where she's at work, they're helping people find jobs, her and her friends are talking, and then her niece shows up. Yep. Um, And and we'd seen her niece before, we'd met her niece Mm -hmm. by herself with her friend, Um, and her niece thinks that Marlene is her mother. And yeah. her niece doesn't get along with, with her mother and and her niece shows up. And then at the end of that scene, we jump back a year and we go back in time a year. Mm-hmm. And her niece, Angie, uh, has tricked Marlene into coming up to visit, even mm-hmm. though they don't get along. And uh, Marlene and her sister get into a fight and Angie overhears them saying that Marlene is in fact Angie's mom. Yeah. Um, And they talk about many different things during the fight. Anyway, basically, from the context clues, Mm -hmm. I have decided that Marlene is the way she is because Angie's father is in fact Joyce, her sister, um, Mm -hmm. Joyce's husband. Um, (laughs) there's evidence given that Joyce got married very young, probably at about, uh, 17 or 18, um, which was right about the time that Marlene, who was 15, got pregnant with Angie. Yep. Marlene mentions that, uh, Joyce's husband kissed her once when he was drunk but it's yeah. kind of glossed over in a way that is very peculiar. Um, That's a good point. The, but there are all these things that point to this relationship not being good, um, to there being abuse. There's They definitely talk about abuse with their parents, with their father, um, with alcoholism. Um, and then if you jump back to the first scene and you look at the women that are there, um, the ones that have children 
don't have children in a consensual way. Um, Joan, Joan does. Um, um, for as long as her child and her, she, uh, lived <laughs> after yeah. the birth of the child, which was, it was not long. <laughs> and yes. Also again, fictional, but not fictional, long. But yes. <laughs> um, but the rest, you know, the relationship between their children, their children's fathers and themselves is very strained. Um, and especially in Lady Nijo's case, it definitely is rape. Oh, yeah. um, so, and then there are, there are a few other clues throughout the, throughout the play that, anyway, it led us to this conclusion that, um, and this was a heated debate in our group, um, yeah. that, again, literally was like a, a light bulb turning off in the middle of a conversation one day. Mm-hmm. That I was like, oh my gosh, I think this is what happened. I think this is what happened. And as we discussed it more, we all kept finding more evidence of, you know, and it's confirmation bias, but whatever. I'm convinced yeah. this is what happened. So for us, part of making Marlene a more, not sensitive character, but a more relatable character or someone that you have empathy for was realizing, oh, she wasn't just some 15-year-old who made a mistake. No, she was a 15-year-old who was either coerced or violently uh, raped by by a man in her life um, that should have been there if not protecting her, at least leaving her the fuck alone. Yeah. And by someone who she had no control over that person being in their li- in her life mm-hmm. and had no control as, you know, the person stayed in her life. And the only way she could get that person out of her life was to remove herself from that life, which is what she wound up doing. You know, she wound up completely gave the baby to her sister and left. Um, you know, she also didn't tell anyone she was pregnant. She didn't really know. She didn't know anything. She didn't know what to do. And, and part of that is hiding the, this man's secret of how terrible he is. Then that brings up a, an even deeper thing of, well, did Joyce know? Oh yeah. That's the hard part. Mm-hmm. And that I think when you come, when we came, or at least when I came to that question, it illuminated so much of the play for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do these women in the office know of each other's lives? What do they actually care? How much is it survival of themselves versus survival of everyone? Um, how much is it lifting each other up versus trying not to drown your, you know, holding someone else's head underwater so that you don't drown. And then that ties that back into that first scene where you have these women who are fictional. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the ideas that are put into about who they are 
by men, by the way, most of them are yeah. actually all of them that are for sure fictional are stories told by men. Um, and even, and even Lady Nijo, where it's questionable as to whether she's real or not, it's, you know, it, um, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I did talk a little bit about uh, each of the historical slash folkloric women in uh, the first part of the podcast. So I'm sure the listeners understand. Okay. Okay. Good, 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 good. Because that's, oh man, is that a whole thing? Also, if you, if, if your listeners are interested on a good episode on Pope Joan, a good podcast, yeah. Um, I recommend Our Fake History, um, O-U-R-R, which is by a Canadian history teacher named Sebastian Major. I wanted to call him Sebastian Stan. That's not right. (laughs) Sebastian Major. Uh, Just plugging him because I enjoy listening to him. And he has a really great episode on Pope Joan that we actually used uh, some of his resources that he lists um, for our own research. So, well, that's cool. So, if anyone, yeah, if anyone is particularly interested in uh, the history of that story, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Listen up. Yeah. So, I think I have one more question, <laughs> and that is, uh, it's an opinion-based question. Um, and it's why do you think people should continue to read or study or produce this play? It is such a complex play. It really, it really is. Um, I had a lot of fun. I, I found the dramaturgical work very long <laughs> and yeah. very tedious, but also extremely fun. Um, because on one hand, it's so much work. And and that's probably about three weeks into the process, Spence said, you know, I think I made a mistake. I think we should have done a fake play. Um, or, or not a fake play, but a, a play we weren't doing, a play that was a little bit easier. Because, I mean, at some point, like, he... He, we, we, he definitely lost control of the class because we would come in and we would be like, nope, this is what we're talking about and let's argue over this for 20 minutes and let's tear our hair out. And, <laughs> um, but I think that's what makes it worth it. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it is a hard play to put on. Yeah. Um, because everything has to be right. Um. But I think working on the play as the costume designer was more fun than I've had in doing work, if that makes sense. Um, Like, it was definitely work, but it was so rewarding. Um, Because especially in, especially when I was being super annoying to my assistant costume designers, (laughs) Because I did know, I, I knew everything. I didn't have any of it written down. I couldn't explain it to you. I could not put words to it. But in my head, I knew everything. And I, you know, there was a reason 
you know, one character couldn't wear earrings. And there's another reason that a character had to have a gold wristwatch. Um, and I think when those things are done well, it, it helps a lot. And I think, I think that was one of the things that every, and I, I don't want to say I did a great job because I don't, I think I could have done better. Um, I understand. I, I think I liked the job I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very proud of it, but I think there are, <laughs> there are details that I would have liked to have better and, 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 but I think this is a play that when everyone has those things, has those details and gets everything to the point where they are almost okay with it because nobody's ever okay with anything. Yeah. That you're able to convey so much more and you will walk out of the theater saying, holy crap, wait, wait a second, hold on, wait, what? Um, <laughs> And again, that's so much more important than having someone walk out of the theater and say, oh, I got it. I get it. I get it. I, I know what they were trying to teach me. Um, yeah, I agree. And it, it sticks with you more. Um, and you might not always like it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that this is a good play that people can actually like. And still walk out of the theater and say oh my god like it really does do this thing where it challenges what you think I mean and going back to the dramaturgical work of it with Griselda especially Griselda is a character um is a European character uh that was in uh, the deck, decrum, something, something. <laughs> Referenced in a lot of things, I believe. Oh man, I could. T- I, I should have pulled up my uh, my workbook um, in front of me. You can Google her, Griselda. Uh, yeah. She's in. She's in this um, story that is a story within a story. Um, in which these people are, are fleeing basically like a civil war, a plague. Um, uh, the Cameron. The Cameron. Cameron, thank you, yes. Yeah. And they go out into the woods and they're telling each other's stories. Yeah. And she's the, her story is the last story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's told by the character that's supposed to be the like wisest or like the trickiest or the, the like kind of a jerk with how smart he is kind of guy. But not like a, like a real jerk, just kind of like a, okay. And the point, the point of the story is that, that it was male talent telling the story. Yeah. And even and even he there's like you know and and he's not making the story up. He's t- the person telling the story is is telling a story he heard and he's telling a story that that men had told him and and the point of the original story is like 
why is a man telling like a very radical, especially given the time, like, well, yeah, of course men think that she's wonderful, but really the guy telling the story that he heard in this other story that you're reading is, is saying, no, her husband was a dick. Like he was terrible for doing this. But then you're like, but wait, but now you're a guy telling a story that another guy told about a woman, but made the woman look good by making the man look good, even though the man was a dick. And then yeah. to complicate all of that, these stories were written down by several different people. And yeah. and so this one was told by two different people, and one of them made it look like, you know, the guy is a dick, and the other one made it look like, oh, no, isn't it great that she was so obedient? And it's... Yeah this whole mindfuck so when you get into the dramaturgy work of this play and you find you are mindfucked by this layer (laughs) of here's a woman telling the story of a here's a woman telling the story of a woman uh that was written by a man that you know was translated by a man that all these different things and then it's a man saying that the man who was telling it was stupid for telling it this way, but that man was saying, and all this, if you're able to somehow convey that, because you can't act, you can't go on stage and be like, okay, so here's what's going to happen. This story about Griselda, let me tell you it. And however the, I don't even know if any of the things, anything I said in the last three minutes made any sense. Um, But if it did, you can't say that on stage. No. So you have, because it's not in the text, so you have to figure out a way to convey that so that when the audience member walks out, they're like, wait a second, wait Mm -hmm. a second, hold on. Yeah. And so that's, that's why this play is, should be performed is because it is a challenge. Um, and I think, I think it's a magnificent challenge. And I think yeah. for me and for anyone who worked on the play, I think we all walked away like with a huge relief that, that people kind of understood um, mm-hmm. the thing that, that, that they should be walking away kind of like what the hell is going on or, yeah. or that they or that they enjoyed it in any least or they, found sympathy in characters that they thought they weren't going to find sympathy in or mm-hmm. and also especially at a collegiate level or at a in a learning environment this is a great play to learn on because yeah. it teaches it, i mean it it teaches you how to dive deep into it and and what is important to bring up to the top and what can you let go of because it's not going to help you tell the story that you want to tell? Yeah. Yes. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, Joanna. I've learned a lot, honestly, and I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot and hopefully we've inspired them to take a closer look at this work or maybe to read it for the first time, as well as some of Carol Churchill's other works. Cause those are pretty good too. So Joanna, where can people find you if they want to find you? Um, I am on LinkedIn. If anybody wants to give me a job, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I'm also, I have social media that I don't check regularly. Twitter and Instagram um, mm-hmm. are public, uh, just at Joanna Eisenberg, um, E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. Uh, I also have a um, email address. Um, it's just my Sarah Lawrence email address that I will gladly accept public whatever's from, uh, which is jeisenberg at gm.slc.edu. <clears throat> um, I'm employable. <laughs> I am very employable. Um, oh, yes, she yeah. is. Yes, she is. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again for joining me on this week's episode, Joanna. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to contact the podcast or suggest plays and or guests that you might want to hear from or about, email me at theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. No hyphen. That's theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the podcast on Instagram at at playmatespodcast. That's at playmatespodcast, no hyphen. Also, please take a second to write a good review and rate the podcast five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you can. It means a lot and it helps uh, other people see the podcast. I can't wait to see you all in next week's episode in which I will be discussing Another Kind of Silence by L.M. Feldman. Thanks again for listening and have a safe and fulfilling week. Bye for now. Thank you.